There is no sufficient way to respond to the presence of these friends of the years and to these far, far too overly generous words that have been spoken. Judge Starr, to you, Dean Still, to friends of decades, to friends from First Baptist Dallas, who in 1968 founded this chair, my thanks. And I'm humbled that you would be here along with my beloved colleagues, as dear as life, and our students. This day, from the text that was read, a look, a sigh, a touch, a word. In 1899, the storied George W. Truitt was invited after only two years at the First Baptist Church of Dallas to return to Baylor University as its president. The students, the faculty, the alumni, the trustees were thrilled that that might be the possibility. The people of the First Baptist Church at Dallas were traumatized. It took him a week of prayer. At the end of that time, Dr. Truitt made one of the famous statements of the many that he made. He said, I have sought and found the shepherd's heart. And for the next 45 years, he preached at that downtown church. It's a fascinating statement. I sought it and found it. Did he mean sometime prior to that? Or was it during that week, wrestling with an opportunity to return to the school that he loved, that he came to a decision that God had given him the heart of a shepherd? And so he stayed at that church. Today is a sermon, not a biography of Dr. Truitt, but I want us to look at this text along the sight lines of his life. This is a story that appears as it is in Mark's gospel alone. And an unusual story as it is, Jesus has been on a retreat with the twelve. So desperate was he to get away from the press of the crowds that he'd gone to Tyre and then to Sidon, ancient Phoenicia. One can imagine him darting in and out of the shadows with the twelve speaking with them. But as if that had not been enough, he takes a circuitous route to the north of Herod's hegemony and winds up in the midst of the Decapolis, those towns with strange names today, Scythopolis and Gadara and Hippo and Acantha, most of them lost in the dust of that desert. And one can picture him in and out of those towns, speaking with the twelve. Some have said that Mark just didn't know his geography, but I think C.B. Cranfield is right. There's nothing improbable about this. Jesus would invest himself far more with twelve real but imperfect followers than he would with thousands of fans. And so he put himself aside with them. And in the midst of this trying to hide, as always, someone found him. It's those they. Mark's gospel's filled with these anonymous incognito they. They bring this man to Jesus who cannot hear and who had some impediment of speech. We don't know if it was congenital, can't tell from reading. Perhaps he had heard and spoken and now disease or injury kept him or 
Leslie Weatherhead, that preacher psychologist of religion, said maybe he suffered a trauma similar to those that Weatherhead saw from World War I and had aphonia, a kind of psychological, we don't know, but he was brought in his silence. And Jesus does this unusual process, takes him aside and looks up and then sighs and then touches him and then the word saved, epata. If Eusebius is right, and Mark recorded the preaching of Peter in Rome at the request of the church, (laughs) maybe in many a sermon, just at that point, he had astounded the people in the house church by saying, Epata, be opened. And immediately the man was healed. But this story for our concern today are four things to note. If Truitt sought and found the shepherd's heart, here's the good shepherd demonstrating parts of that. First of all, an upward look that empowers. Here only we're told Jesus paused and looked up before he looked out at this man. Is this not but an echo of the fifth chapter of John when he said elsewhere, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself? He looks up. He sees what the Father is doing, and that he does. It's worth a moment of pause to say before he looked out, he looked up. And this was by no means the most challenging of the miracles he performed, but even at this He looked up. Consider who it is who had to stop and look up. Our confession is, this is one of the triune Godhead. But he looked up. This is the Logos. This is the one of the Pleroma, full of the Godhead bodily. But he looked up. Here was one who never knew a second of interrupted fellowship with the Father. But he looked up. Up. Here's one in whom all things hold together. But he looked up. I don't have to strain the implication, do I? If he had to look up, how much more do we? Here we are. We cannot claim uninterrupted fellowship with the Father. This flesh that's always too much with us. The discouragements of life itself, no less ministry. Our own temperaments that we battle, whether it's a flash fire of wrath or impatience or simply that asadia of indifference, oh, we're interrupted plenty. And if he had to look up before he could look out and do anything, how much more is that true of us? He had inherent in him. Inherent, storm-stilling, demon-deposing, death-demolishing, healing power. But he had to pause and look up. If that's true, how much more true of us? We're here today because we love this school. Some of us here, almost from its beginning, others of who joined midway. But it's not long before we come to love this place and 
what it stands for. When Rufus Burleson, the famed president of Baylor, was passing into eternity over by 5th Street, he asked them to lift him up so he could see the spires of Baylor. There's a sense in which we want to be lifted up to see the gold cross atop this steeple by this interstate. But this seminary and any seminary is a place we love, but also a place that has its own peculiar perils. The peril of careerism, the peril of professionalism, the parable of thinking it becomes mechanical to do the kind of things that ministers do. To borrow a phrase, to think that they work ex opere operato, they just work out of themselves as long as we say the right mantras and we stop looking up. Many of you are here to get a master of divinity. But because you have a master of divinity, it does not go out and you can say to everybody, be open unless you look up. In fact, it's better to be mastered by divinity and then get a master of divinity. I feel it. I've felt it. I've been at this for 50 years, 51 years now, preaching. Started when I was two. No, no, <laughs> 51. I have felt it. The insidious thing that I've got this thing down, hundreds of funerals, many weddings, a thousand hospital visits, who knows how many counseling sessions, presiding over committee, how easy it is to become a ministerial Samson and not know that your own hair's been cut until you shake yourself to go out and kill a Philistine and you can't do it anymore. He looked up before he looked out. <laughs> the transcendent preceded the imminent. In all of the stories of the lives of George Truitt, to me the most affecting one was from his childhood. He and his brother Luther and other boys were part of a farm family. Their young farm mother would fix breakfast and with their father They'd go out and work the fields, but they noticed sometime Mother Truett was weeping even by the time breakfast was over. She would disappear, and then she would come back radiant. And even these lads wondered, what happened? So they sneaked behind her one day, and they found her face down in the dirt of an orchard, this young farmer's wife. And they overheard her prayer. And 40 years later, Truett revealed what he heard that day. He said, I heard her praying, Lord, I don't know how to rear these boys. I will make a shipwreck of it. Unless you guide me, I can't do it. I can't counsel them. I can't guide them. That stayed with George W. Truett until he was an old man. Sometimes when I think of that story and drive up to this place, I wonder about the impression that made on him. And if there is not a straight line from that orchard to the name on the tower of this school, because he learned how to look up before he looked out. But there's not only a look that empowers, the sigh that reveals us in the heart of this text. We read that after he looked up, 
He sighed. Now the palette of colors that make up a sigh is a varied palette. It can be frustration. (laughs) Sometimes it can just be giving up. Sometimes things are tedious. Sometimes people sigh with cynicism. Sometimes they sigh when, when something's done. There's a whole score of things that leads us to sigh. Why did Jesus sigh? (laughs) So he understands here this is the only time that it's said just like this. After he looked up, he looked at this man and sighed. That sigh goes from mountain peak to mountain peak in the New Testament. The very same word occurs in Romans 8 when Paul says, all creation sighs. And then he says, we sigh. Because something is unbalanced. Something is not as it should be. And he says, nature as a macrocosm and we as a microcosm. Know that. That mountain peak calls to the peak in Second Corinthians 5. When Paul says, recognizing the extinction that belongs to this physical body. We sigh. Because we'd like to find something permanent beside Jesus. I don't know. He sighed certainly as part of his humanity. Same humanity that was weary at the well, that wept at the tomb of Lazarus, that went to sleep in the boat, that lamented over Jerusalem. It was a sigh, but it was a sigh at this specific man's concrete situation. He looked at him. He was a man who'd never heard children sing, never heard the Torah read in the synagogue, never heard a word of love in his life. And Jesus sighed. Here's a man who couldn't speak. He was some kind of impediment, evidently, because later it says the tongue, the chain of his tongue was loose. But here was a man who felt things that he'd never been able to say. And Jesus sighed. But I wonder if Jesus sighed for this man's future. Healing and freedom brings with it its own perils. This man had never heard children sing, but he'd also never heard a curse. This man had never been able to read the Torah in the synagogue, but he'd never been able to speak an unkind word. And I wonder if Jesus didn't cry because of the futility of the situation in which we all find ourselves. In fact, if he didn't see in this man a representative of all of humanity. It's hard for us to look at things that way. But I think he could look at and through. And in front of him was a world that was deafened to hear the God who wanted to speak to it. A world that was supposed to speak his praises. And in this man, he saw it all and he sighed. Just down the hall here in the heritage room is a little communion set that Woodrow Wilson gave to George W. Truitt and sent him off to preach to the soldiers in the trenches in World War I. On August 26, 1918, the day after Truitt had spoken at Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle on Monday morning, he went to a Canadian hospital And he saw the train bringing in young men. He wrote in his diary, they had one hand, one foot, one eye. He so moved he could hardly speak. And then he went in to visit some American soldiers. And he wrote his wife, Josephine, and said there was a 19-year-old there 
That 19-year-old was so frightened and lonely that he grabbed me and Truett picked him up and he said, I, I petted him like he was a baby and he wouldn't let me go. And Truett said, I had to put on the brakes or I would have broken down in sobs. Part of the reason we're talking about him here. He left in 1944 is because he could look out and he could sigh. I remember time I was in Dallas at the church talking with old members. I remember standing out on Irve Street with a man, oh, and he remembered the day before he left for World War II. And he remembered the pathos with which Truett spoke to him and encouraged him. <laughs> I know in the ministry we have to keep some professional distance or it would eat us up. I think oncologists, counselors, social workers, and pastors are taught sometimes you have to step away from it, but you cannot stay away from it. The degree to which you're going to redeem and transform will be the degree to which you can feel anything about the people you're speaking with. And if it is all antiseptic and clinical and detached and mechanical, there will not be much transformation take place. But the degree to which we can look up so that we can look out with a sigh. <laughs> Father Damien was that famous uh, <laughs> Catholic priest who cared for the lepers on the flat Hawaiian island of Molokai. Not often visited. He had a leper colony. He ate with them. He lived with them. One day he was saying the daily office when a maid overturned a boiling tea kettle and the water fell on his leg. She fell on her knees to beg his forgiveness. And then they both recognized that he didn't feel anything. He'd caught the very thing he'd been treating. One thing, if you preach pastor, minister, and church, parachurch, whatever, you're in one way or the other going to be begging people to feel, to be sensitive. But one thing is to take care that you don't contract the very thing you're warning about and lose the ability to feel. Jesus sighed, but he sighed because he looked up before he looked out. There's a great deal of ministry today that is imminent, and it's all good causes. Your generation, our students' generation of preachers, have almost a different set of causes than some of the causes I was presented with in seminary, all of them very legitimate. The environment and the danger to it, payday lending, social injustice, green, or you have, and all of it very important. But recognize that the power to change anything looking out will come because first you look up. Well then, there's a touch that expresses a strange little story here. A touch he didn't just touch the man. He stuck his fingers in the man's ears, spat on his hand, and touched the man's tongue. Some of the form critics amuse me a little bit here. They say that Jesus knew that itinerant thaumaturgists, uh, traveling miracle workers, did this, and he did the same thing as if the Lord couldn't have an original thought. I doubt that it was any more common in that day than this to stick your fingers in people's ear and spit on their tongue. 
It would have shocked you. <laughs> we Baptists say that Jesus is a personal Savior. What do we mean by that? It baffles some of our friends in other communions. One thing we mean by personal is that he accommodates his methods to our needs. The same Lord who never made any two sunrises or seascapes the same is the same Lord who is able without changing his message so to accommodate it to our individuality. Here's a man who never heard anything. What better to do than to act as if he's boring a hole in the man's ears? How could you miss it? Here was a man who, if he spoke at all, was inarticulate and garbled. This man must have heard or known, here is the great teacher who spoke as a man never spoke. And he's taken something right out of his mouth. <laughs> and he's put it in my mouth. The accommodating of ends to means. Oh, <laughs> it's so easy today to be remote in how we care for people. We can put a check with a magnetic strip on it in a church envelope that's coded and send it off and say, hope it helps somebody. We can give to world vision or we can give to compassion and say, hope there's somebody out there. But when we just walk by and throw something at somebody and don't say a word to them, our disdain may do more hurt than our charity did good. Even the Son of God had to touch and touch what was not easy to touch. 1894, as an undergraduate at Baylor, George Truett was pastor over in East Waco, the East Waco Baptist Church. Street corner is still there. He said, as he visited his members, the study of every individual's needs is what I love about the pastorate. And he said, sermons flock to me when I've spent time with my people, touching individuals. I'll tell you something out of my own life and heart. It happened behind me, over on the other side of the interstate, right up 4th Street. I'll tell you about it. The judge has been kind, others have been overly kind to say I've spoken to this big crowd or that big crowd. After years, all of that runs together. It's not to discount it. But it comes a bit of a blur. And at the end of the day, you feel like that one in Jesus' parable. Having done all, you were an unprofitable servant. You did your duty. Do you know what you remember? Let me tell you what you remember. It's 1969. I'm pastor of a little church over where the Baylor Band practices now in the poorest community in Waco. We have a church bus. On Saturday, I knock on doors up and down 4th and 5th and 6th and 7th and 8th Street. Up on 4th Street live Israel and Rosie Diosis and their eight children. I remember going in there the first time. Some slumlord had the house. There wasn't a stick of furniture in it. I sat down on the floor with Rosie and Israel. I said, would you ride the bus? They rode it. They came, and after a while, down the aisle, confessing faith in Christ, baptized, they became radiant new believers. Uh, 
That was back in the day when I thought I had to be the Holy Spirit to keep people saved. (laughs) I went to their house time after time, discipled them, tutored them, carried them to the hospital. To this day, in thinking back of a half-century ministry, nothing is brighter to me than sitting on that floor right on the other side of the interstate. A lot of stuff, big crowds, accolades, oh, they, they come, they go. What you will remember are moments like that. And then, hmm, he says a word. He looked up, he looked out, he touched. We can emulate all of that to that degree. It, it's something we, <laughs> we could and should. But here comes a moment when in the full strength of his dominical authority... And with every confidence, because he's looked up, he says this word, preserved for us, just as he says it, be opened. (laughs) Now, there's a strange thing here. He said this to a deaf man. (laughs) He spoke a word. It's an oxymoronic situation. He said this to someone who couldn't hear him. You know, one of the more ingenious exegetes said this man was a lip reader. I doubt it. (laughs) He didn't say it to the man's deafness. He said it to the whole of the man. That same Lord administrator of creation, without whom nothing was made that was made, who spoke into the silences of a vast void and said, let there be light spoke to this man and said, be opened. <laughs> I read somewhere in the patristic era that the Bishop of Milan and the Bishop of Rome said that to the baptized as they came out of the baptistry. Said this very word, Epata, be open. <laughs> I wonder how many times Jesus says a word that we don't hear. We've got a record with Peter in that little snippet of Luke. Simon, Simon, Satan procured you by asking for you. But I myself prayed for you that your faith won't go into eclipse. And when you've retraced your steps, strengthen your brother. Peter didn't hear that. It was a word spoken over him. We're going to go out here in a minute, early in a semester. Up and down these halls will be conversations, whether you know it or not, you'll remember the rest of your life. Maybe those that mean something are because somewhere. He said, and it opens your heart to somebody. You be in a covenant group praying, you're going to confess to one another. Some of those moments will be etched in you forever. Maybe it's because... A word you didn't hear was spoken. And you opened up. You're going to be studying a scripture class and suddenly from the strangest place, maybe a pluperfect passive Greek verb, (laughs) you're going to get an insight. Maybe it's because he said, you're going to read the stories of the storied heroes of church history and one of them will vibrate with your heart. And you're going to say, my, what an insight I had. Maybe. Or maybe he said, 
There may be some words you don't hear when he says, be opened. George Druid's favorite hymn was, he leadeth me. It just seems appropriate we live here today singing that. He leadeth me, O precious thought, O words with heavenly comfort wrought, where'er I go, where'er I be, still tis thy hand that leadeth me. He loved it. He asked them to sing it over and over. The old creed says we believe in the communion of the saints. (laughs) Somehow the church militant on earth is in communion with the church at rest. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe George could look down and say, they're singing my song. Let's stand and sing.